let's get it. Monday, May 30th, 2022. Born the Battle, brought to you by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. However you listen to Born the Battle, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Facebook, the player inside the blog on blogs.va.gov. Hope you're having a good week outside of podcast land. Today is Memorial Day. I hope that today you get a chance to reflect on those that have given us the freedom to do what we want to do today. May we never forget them and their ultimate sacrifice. One admin note, as we've gained a lot of listeners, a lot of followers since Facebook launched its podcast support on the VA's Facebook page. Appreciate you listening. However, Facebook is going to stop that support in early June. Uh, After that, there will be no more new updates for podcasting within Facebook. It sucks because we got a lot of new listeners from there. Uh, Again, we love that you guys joined the Born the Battle community. Uh, if you wish to continue being part of it, you'll have to find us on a podcast directory, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, iTunes, uh, you know, one of those, Stitcher, and subscribe and get updates there. Uh, it's uh, a shame that that we think it's a shame that uh, Facebook is, is discontinuing that because, again, we got a lot of new listeners from there. Uh, but we hope that you stay abreast and stay part of our community here at Born the Battle by going to one of those podcast directories and hitting the subscribe button. No new ratings or reviews. That's all right. However, if you haven't yet, please consider writing a review for Born the Battle on Apple Podcasts. Doing so does help us climb higher in the charts due to Apple's algorithm, giving more veterans a better opportunity to discover Born the Battle, much like you have. Listen to the testimonies of their fellow veterans. Listen to our benefits breakdown episodes and hear what's in our news releases. It's also the best way for me to communicate with you. You provide feedback. I respond. It's a good two-way. It's a good two-way thing we got going on. Three news releases this week. First, you know, I'm just going to skim the first one, but it's a good piece of news. After two years without gatherings, the VA National Cemeteries will once again host public Memorial Day ceremonies. For more information about your local VA National Cemetery and the ceremonies that they're going to be doing, uh, you can visit their website. Uh, Live streaming, recorded video, and photos from many ceremonies will be on National Cemetery Administration's Facebook and Twitter pages. In addition, for Memorial Day, VA encourages all Americans to honor a fallen service member by leaving a tribute on the Veterans Legacy Memorial site. It contains a memorial page for each of the nearly 4.5 million veterans and service members interred in VA National Cemeteries or VA-grant-funded state, territorial, or tribal veteran cemeteries. And that site is vlm.cem.va.gov. For a full overview of the Veterans Legacy Memorial, we also have a benefits breakdown episode that we did last year here on Born the Battle. It's in our archives. Finally, a full list of ceremonies will be found in the link at the bottom of the press release. And you can find the press release in this episode's show notes or in this episode's blog at blogs.va.gov. All right, the next one says, for immediate release, the Department of Veterans Affairs Health Administration launched three operational levels called VHA COVID-19 Health Protection Levels to provide a consistent nationwide approach at its medical centers. VA applied the three-tier safety protocol standard effective May 23rd, enhancing safety for veterans, visitors, and employees during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. The levels align with the CDC's community transmission levels designed for use by healthcare facilities. The levels are on a low, medium to high scale as described below. Low, visitors are welcome, self-screening allowed, and physical distancing is not required. Medium, care partners are welcome, self-screening is allowed, and physical distancing not required. And high, visitors are limited to the discretion of the care term on a case-by-case basis. Facilities may choose to screen at the door, and physical distancing is required. Masking and employee screen testing as applicable, will remain in effect at all VHA medical facilities, regardless of health protection levels and consistent with CDC guidelines for healthcare facilities. The VA COVID-19 protection levels do not impact current requirements regarding testing and masking for employees. 
Levels will be monitored weekly at each facility and updated to reflect any changes on Mondays. VA centers will notify veterans and staff by displaying large signage at all facility entrances, updating levels on their local facility websites and social media. All medical center voicemails will include VHA COVID-19 health protection levels as well. Now, to use the VA Medical Center locator to find its current level, you can also find the locator. You can find the locator at www.va.gov forward slash find hyphen locations. All right, and the last one says for immediate release as part of the Department of Veterans Affairs 10-year strategy to reduce veteran suicide, VA invites innovators across the country to participate in Mission Daybreak, a $20 million challenge designed to help VA develop new suicide prevention strategies for veterans. Those interested are encouraged to submit their detailed concept papers via missiondaybreak.net to VA no later than July 8th, 2022. Proposed solutions for Mission Daybreak should seek to address one or more of the design challenge focus areas outlined in the Mission Daybreak webpage. During phase one, all challenge participants will have access to a collection of open data, surveys, and reports on veteran suicide prevention as they prepare their concept papers. Innovators and collaborators are also invited to join the Mission Daybreak solver community, which helps solvers expand and augment their teams with interdisciplinary expertise. To learn more and hear from experts, solvers are encouraged to register for the upcoming virtual information session and topical webinars. 40 teams will receive awards ranging from $100,000 to $3 million, which will be distributed across two phases. For more information on the challenge, visit missiondaybreak.net. All right, this week's guest, like last week's guest, is a retired Army Major General, highly decorated as he has service in Panama, Bosnia, and he was also the commanding general of the 82nd Airborne Division during the initial push in Iraq. He is now the Vice President of Armed Forces Affairs for Speedway Motorsports Incorporated, which hosts NASCAR's Memorial Day Coke 600 at Charlotte Motor Speedway. He is also the Executive Director of Speedway Children's Charities and is the President of the Patriot Military Family Foundation. He is Major General Chuck Swanick. Enjoy. You and I linked up because of, of Willie. Um, now, are you guys cubicle meet mates or, or share an office together? How how, how close are seventh, you? Seventh floor of Smith Tower here in Charlotte, North Carolina, Charlotte Motor Speedway, and he's right down the hall from me. And and uh, so I lean on him, you know, for video support and things like that. Good friend of mine. Good friend of mine. I'm, and when he said, you know, we have a general in my in my office. You know, he he's been to you know, and I, I was like, really? Well, let's get him on the podcast here and. And then I read your bio. I was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's have him on. Um, so, sir, I'm, I'm really glad that we can finally do this. I'm glad we can too. And thank you for your service. I'm a big fan of the Marines that turned the whole Western part of Iraq over to uh, Mad Dog Mattis and, uh, and the first Marine division. And uh, Jim Conway was, was there as the first MEF commander. Roger that, sir. Yeah. I was uh, General Conway's, I was General Conway's uh, videographer for his last uh, Marine Corps birthday message, and uh, I was vi- I was Amos's vid- videographer after that. So Conway, I wish I wish I wish General Conway could narrate my life. You know, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm, was I'm, a, actually, it, I'm actually going to be with uh, General Pete Pace and General Jim Amos tomorrow night at the uh, Veterans Bridge Home uh, salute. What is Star Star Spangled salute they're having? Oh, outstanding! That's outstanding, sir. Um, well, sir, the first question we always have here on Born the Battle is where and when did you know that military service was going to be the next step in your life? And I ask you in that way, because for a lot of veterans, especially in Vietnam, they didn't have the choice to go in themselves. So for you, when did you know it was the, that was going to be the next step in your life? Well, my dad was with Bell Telephone Laboratories and he had a gentleman working for him by the name of Al Walser who was a class in 1952 out of West Point. And so in my sophomore, late sophomore year, early junior year, I learned about West Point and said, hey, that sounds like a great place to go to school. And then uh, uh, Bobby Knight and uh, Dave Bliss and Don DeVoe, basketball coaches, came down. One of them, Dave Bliss, came down here to see me play basketball. And I was going to ask you if it was the Bobby Knight. The Bobby Knight. But anyway, Dave Bliss came down and watched me, and I was lucky enough to score 25 points against Parkland couldn't miss. I mean, I'd be falling down on my butt after a rebound. I'd throw it back up there to go in. One of those kind of nights, you know, 
And so uh, that's I went up to play basketball at West Point, but uh, and that's when I probably knew. I, I went to R.J. Reynolds High School and went to Salem, North Carolina, and had pretty good academics, but not as advanced as a lot of people going to West Point. And so I went in as a plebe and did quite good in mathematics and science, and stayed there four years. And uh, I I was high enough in my class. I graduated sixty nine out of seven hundred twenty, and wow. uh, I was high enough to to choose any branch I wanted to, but I chose infantry because I said, you know, I don't know much about the military, but let me learn from the infantry. And if I like it, I'll, I'll do, I'll stay with it and ended up staying uh, 33 plus years. 33 years. I did not know that you played basketball at West Point. Did you have other offers from other schools? I probably would go to NC state, but wouldn't play basketball. And uh, I only played plebe year, uh, freshman year of basketball. Had a knee operation. I played four years of golf and I was captain of West Point golf team. So very good. Very good. I was, I was wondering, cause you know, I mean, people, I don't think people understand West Point that, you know, it is the, one of the top schools and, and a lot of people like I've talked to that have been athletes at that school. It's like, you know, when you have offers from other school, but you have an offer from West Point, is it even a decision from, from an academic standpoint to even think about any other school at the time? Yeah, it was no decision for me. And, Actually, I had a high school sweetheart. I, I left in uh, Winston-Salem, and but we kept together over uh, the years and got married. Really? We did, yep. Long distance. That's awesome to hear, sir. It's awesome to hear. Well, sir, I'm not going to, not even getting into Haiti, um, You, but you, you participated and deployed to numerous operations, big and small. Um, I want to start with the two Panamanian operations. I didn't know that there were two operations. Uh, I, I, I mean, as a Marine, I only knew of Operation Just Cause. Um, what was Nimrod Dancer? And, you know, I always love how military names or operations like Nimrod Dancer. Like, who thinks of that as a name? Well, that's, that's DOD that thinks those things up. And uh, so uh, when 7th Infantry Division Light was established, it was primarily for... Um, contingency operations because it doesn't take very many aircraft, Air, Air Force aircraft to get us there. Roger. And so uh, Noriega was down there threatening actually some of our school buses and our forces down in Panama. And so we were activated and, and deployed during Operation Nimrod Dancer to basically secure the uh, Panama Canal to reinforce our forces down there and to maybe do something that would provoke Noriega and allow us to come in there and, and take them out. And I was down there for 90 days. Actually, I assumed command of the 2nd Battalion, 9th Infantry Regiment, Manchu, in Fort Davis, Panama. Wow. And, uh, and then I stayed down there through August and then was replaced. And then the one you probably heard of most, Operation Just Cause, we went down there from uh, deployed down there, 82nd Airborne Division went down there. We worked for the 82nd Airborne Division in Panama City, uh, I was out at uh, Noriega's house with some special operators looking for him. Yeah. Actually, I was able to get a couple of his business cards, and I got one in my back pocket of Manuel Noriega's business card. Interesting. I gave yeah. one to every senior senior leader in the battalion I commanded, uh, officer enlisted, which is which is something, you know, as a remembrance to the folks you go to combat with. And when I went to Iraq, Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom, I bought dinars that uh, had Saddam Hussein's face on it that you probably saw some of. Yes, sir. And I wrote wrote my name and uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom across it and Commanding General 82nd Airborne Division at the time. And I gave those mementos to the senior leaders that worked for us down there yeah. in Iraq. Very good. Very good. Interesting. Interesting. Very interesting. Um you were also the commanding general of multinational division North. Is that, is that a NATO post? It is a NATO post. It's gotcha. uh was a, a operation joint forge mm -hmm. and uh multinational division North was up in near Tuzla Eagle base. Probably a lot of people know it by, but uh, I had Russians working for us, had Turkish, had Danish, I had an American infantry battalion from the 25th division working for us. And uh, you had Russians. As had Russians that were in what the old part of, you know, on the Serbia side of Bosnia. Mm. And I kept on trying to get them to go out and do night patrols. And so I would have a forcing function. 
I would go out on a Friday night and walk a patrol with a squad just to get them out working. Cause some of them, you know, would stay in, in their barracks with their vodka and, and not do much at night. <laughs> and so I use it as a forcing function to go out and walk with, uh, with units on Friday night and get out there and see what they're doing. And, and I did it with the Russians, but it, it took a while for them to, cause they had to go back up their chain of command to, to basically, they didn't take my orders immediately. I had to go back up chain of command and ask if permission to do it. And so that's how it worked. Interesting. The general had to go on his own patrol. Wow. I did the same thing in Iraq, believe it or not. Once it kind of quieted down, we were fighting the insurgency. Yes, sir. I'd go out with company commanders back then and I'd walk, uh, walk patrols with them just to make sure that we just didn't do everything by day and let the enemy do it at night. I'd make sure we got out there at night, as, as you well know, have probably taken some video of. Yes, sir. Um, Operation Joint Forge in Bosnia. Uh, you know, not many folks know uh, how large of a conflict the breakup of Yugoslavia was. Uh, my family's from Yugoslavia, so my grandfather, you know, kind of taught me about Yugoslavia and where we came from. Um, what was our role there, specifically Joint Forge? Well, our role was to maintain, I guess, security and keep kind of a lid on an ethnic uh, turmoil between the uh, the Serbs. Uh, Serbs and the Muslims. And so that was what we were there for. A matter of fact, uh, Srebrenica massacre, I would take, um, we would take a hundred buses of the women who lost loved ones at the battery factory there. And we would ensure their security going to visit the area where their family members were killed, slaughtered wow. uh, by the Serbs back then and, uh, and make sure they had safe passage. Wow. But it's pretty much uh, what we call ethnic cleansing back then. And that's what we were putting the lid on. So there no more could be no more ethnic cleansing. Not many people know exactly how far that, that whole thing went, the ethnic cleansing, the, the you know, except for folks that, that uh, went there. Um, but yeah, That's I think right. a, from, yeah. A, from, from, from a military history standpoint, people should probably look at that one a little bit more. Um, now, so you were also the CG during the 82nd, during the time of the Iraq invasion. At what point did you know that, yeah, we are going to cross this line of demarcation and this thing is actually going to kick off? Because I want to know, like, a, yeah, I was going to say at the general level, at what point did they know? Well, we... You know, for all the forces that went over there uh, to get ready to do this, we used to do all the rehearsal, the rock drills, the sand table exercises. And so the 82nd Airborne Division was kind of late into that tip fid to deploy over there. And I was at a meeting where General McKiernan, the ground force commander, briefing all the division commanders uh, with General Shinseki and General Jack Keene. Mm. And they were up there talking about it and talking about here we're going to be crossing the berm about now. And so General Keene asked, well, what happens if Saddam Hussein gets assassinated or if some he decides to go live with Gaddafi? And uh, and he turned General Keene, you know, just just kind of a rhetorical question out there. And he turned to General Shinseki, chatted a few seconds and he turned to me and he said, Swanick, you need to have a deployable, airdroppable force in Kuwait before we kick this thing off because we have to 650 kilometers. The only thing that can get there are you and the Rangers. So that's why we were positioned in Baghdad. So we were right underneath the tower at the Kuwait international airport, mm -hmm. uh, all our equipment rigged and ready to go. And I went into our dining facility uh, one evening and that's when president George Bush said, Saddam, you get out of there in 96 hours or we're coming. And at that point in time, that was the point in time I finally figured this, we're going to go. Sir, I love that. I love that everyone, I mean, it, it took the president on TV saying 96 hours, just even for the, you know, a two-star general to go, yeah, this thing is actually going. <laughs> right. yeah. That's amazing. I thought a show of force would be enough, but it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with the current conflict uh, going out in Ukraine, you know, some people are looking back at the invasion and, and seeing from a logistical standpoint, what a huge feat it was. I mean, you know, right now Russia's running out of gas, invading a country adjacent to it. Meanwhile, we were able to invade a country and, and from half a world away, almost flawlessly. 
Our logisticians get, should get most of the credit for that. I mean, we had good uh, strategists and operational uh, planners and things like that to put the whole thing together. But the logist, I basically say a, a, a logistician will cause a whole war to stop if they don't do their job. I mean, an operator might get a bunch of people killed, uh, but a logistician causes the whole war to come to, to a halt if they if we don't get the, the fuel, the ammo, um, and the meals, the food, and all that stuff positioned and ready to go. Bullets, beans, and band-aids. Uh, I mean, you're seeing it right now. Uh, you know, Ukraine kind of came to a screeching halt when that huge convoy didn't get what it needed. And so, sure. yeah, you take a look at that. I just think it's amazing. You take a look at that, and you take a look at what – the U S forces were able to comp, you know, accomplish half a world away, you know, not a country adjacent to it. And that's not, we weren't going into Mexico, like kind of like what they're doing. We were literally half a world away and we're able to accomplish that. I just think it's amazing. Right. And what you saw with the Russians when they came to a screeching halt is vividly what we're talking about. You got to have logisticians at the, at the, uh, you know, rearming refuel points on time and the operators got to get there or it's not going to work. It's not going to, everything's going to get bogged down. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Um, well, sir, while you were in, give me either a best friend or your greatest mentor. Well, I was blessed to have a lot of uh, good leaders to work for, but probably the best mentor I ever had was a gentleman by the name of Huba Vastasega. Now I'm That's not sure. That's quite a name. You've, you've never heard of that name. He, he retired as a brigadier general. Mm. Um, he was, the co-author of the airland battle doctrine from the mid eighties that served us well in desert shield and desert storm. And also in Panama with swift action, 21 targets in one night, but he was my, uh, the Manchu commander back when I was his operations officer as S three. And then later before he left his uh, executive officer, um, and he taught me a lot about airland battle, about doctrine, about leadership in combat. He's a Vietnam veteran with 173rd Airborne Brigade in Vietnam. Gotcha. And he was just a wonderful mentor. Now, the one thing about him is when you understand you're working for somebody with that, that much brilliance, you have to f figure out a way to slow them down because, I mean, even I working pretty hard, and that's probably the hardest I ever worked too. I could never keep up with them. And so I had to get him to understand when I'd brief him on Friday afternoons, what's going on. I'd have to ask him for a moratorium on good ideas because he was just, <laughs> he was just brilliant. And if I didn't slow him down, we'd never keep up with him. I, I think that's amazing. You asked for a moratorium on good idea fairies ideas. Um, you know, we call them good idea fairies now. It's uh that I, I got, I got to keep that in mind. I still, I'm still in DC, sir. So, you know, I, I hear the good idea fairies all the time still to this day. So I'm going to, I'm actually going to steal that from you. A moratorium on the good ideas. Very yeah. good. That's a good one. You got when you, when you're dealing with so many brilliance, you, you, you got your pencil and your paper there and you're just trying to keep up with them with that. And you say, hey, hold yeah. on a second. I can't keep up. Let's slow down a little bit. Let's get, <laughs> let's, let's, let's accomplish one before we go on to the next. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, you said he, he taught you a lot about leadership. If you were to pick one thing about in leadership, uh, in combat leadership, maybe, uh, what would it be? I think it would be the projection of the leader and the attitude of, I guess, the attitude of the leader. Because more often than not, you have to be a motivator to be a, a leader. I mean, you've got to have some good common sense. You've got to listen to people. But you got to be a be in the right frame of mind and attitude that people who work for you are willing to do and get the job done. Yes, sir. And so I've served for some commanders who are very ruthless and very tough and demanding. And that's not the kind of leadership um, that I learned from. Huba Vastasega. It's more of a caring, compassionate servant leadership. And I think that's probably the most important thing. I'm, I'm still serving today, um, our veterans community. And I think it's just a servant's heart is what the center of the best thing he taught me. Very good. Very good. 
Um, what year did you retire, sir? I retired in 2005. 2005. What After you- the 82nd Airborne Division, I got the 18th Airborne Corps ready to go to uh, Iraq to be the three-star headquarters working for General Casey, who had come in there. And, uh, and then I retired. It was, one, because I wanted to get my marriage intact, because if you saw that timeline, I was in Bosnia, and then I went to 82nd, and I went to Iraq. So I wasn't around for a while. Yeah. And before that, I was a command general of Fort Polk, Louisiana. Um, and that's kind of a busy job and never around because you're always out there training forces. And so I wasn't around for a while. So I had to work on my marriage one and two, um, probably read somewhere. I'm not a big fan of Rumsfeld. Um, and I would have had to get another, another star promoted to, uh, Lieutenant general. I would have had to go do basically an interview with Donald Rumsfeld and I wasn't a big fan of his. He, uh, his staff asked me when I was in the western part of Iraq after in, in Fallujah, which you've probably heard of. Oh, as a Marine, absolutely. Different, different, different kind of town, different kind of city of about 350,000. Uh, on the outside is Highway 1 that goes around the, the outside of uh, Fallujah. Mm-hmm. And a convoy of paratroopers were out there and somebody tried to blow them up, but it didn't work. And the paratroopers basically surrounded them in a little hamlet nearby of three houses and they're in one house. And rather than, you know, kick down the door and get some people shot, I said, yeah, go ahead and use an AC-130 gunship. I mean, talk them out. If they can come out, fine. If they don't, use an AC-130 gunship. <laughs> Basically did, and there were four dead. And a Reuters reporter asked me about that. And I said, well, I, I learned uh, something along the way, and it's how to fight. And it was from Viscount Slim, and it was use a sledgehammer to crush a walnut. And Mm -hmm. that's what I quoted. Well, his staff asked me what I meant by that. Uh, General, I mean, uh, Donald Rumsfeld's staff called me and asked about that. And I said, well, have you ever read the book uh, Defeat and a Victory by Viscount Slim in the Burma campaign? And when you do, you probably won't have to ask me the answer to it. When you're confronted by the enemy who's trying to kill you, don't put somebody's arm behind their back and say, fight it, fight him with one arm. We just don't do it that way. We use overwhelming combat power, trying to minimize collateral damage, but get the job done and save as many paratroopers as we can. Keep alive. Yeah. 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 So anyway, that's, that's why after I retired, I was kind of, Basically saying that Donald Rumsfeld, you're responsible for policy and budget. Don't get into the war fighting business because that's not your, listen to some of the people working for you about war fighting. Yes, sir. Excuse me. Excuse me for saying. No, no. Everyone, everyone, you know, it's politics or politics uh, when it comes to, you know, when it comes to people that are out of uniform, it's amazing. We've all seen it. We've all seen it. Um, What did Chuck Swanick do? On his first day out of uniform after 33 years, the first day. That's a great question. Well, I probably uh, sat there in the sun and just basically took it easy and thought about, you know, what it's going to be like being retired. Mm -hmm. And just to let your mind slow down for a second, let your heart slow down for a second and just kind of get into a in kind of a relaxing mode was, was what I tried to do. Um, Good. And that's, and I try to, I try to stay kind of uh, active uh, working to keep my health, my mental health and my physical health uh, in, in retirement. But it was just slowing down because uh, probably when you took off your uniform, you're going 90 miles an hour. Then all of a sudden you got to get back to, being able to talk to people at, you know, 20, 25 miles per hour. And it's yeah. just different. Yeah. You can't just yell at people speeding by the PX anymore. You know, it's just, right. <laughs> I remember my first job. Well, my first job was at, at NASCAR, you know, I was a senior editor for NASCAR. Um, and but after about a weekend, um, my boss came in and he said, uh, you know, Tanner word around the street is that, uh, is that you curse a lot? <laughs> I was like, I, you know, I, he's, he's like, no worries. Like I, I told him I hired him. I hired a Marine. He's like, but can you, can you work on it? I was like, yes, sir. Absolutely. I, I think, I think for everyone, 
um, every veteran that that gets out there ha- there is an adjustment period when it comes to civilianizing yourself. Would you say that's accurate, accurate, sir? Well, that's very accurate. You got you got to be able to do that. Yep. Mm-hmm. How were you able to do it? I think I think the other thing about when you slow down like that, you got to become a better listener because sometimes when you're with units and you got to make a decision, you got to vocalize a decision quickly and get people moving in the right direction. Um, but when you become a civilian and the people around you aren't going to move if you bark at them, yeah, you got to just listen to them and then maybe use an in, indirect approach to get them to do what you want to do. Um, yes. Instead of asking them, frankly, you can, you can try it frankly, but if it doesn't work, you got to do an indirect approach and come around the corner and say, Hey, wouldn't it be a good idea if we did this mm-hmm. <laughs> or make it seem like it's their idea. That's right. Kind of exactly. lead, them to, lead them to where it's their idea. Absolutely. Yeah. No, different, different, um, leadership styles. Absolutely. Um, uh, the direct one is, is kind of not as prevalent as, as, as it, you know, I think a lot of veterans, it, every veteran has to, has to learn that. Um, now for a while, sir, I read in your bio that you got into defense contracting. I mean, why not at that time? Um, how did you go? But my question is, how did you go from a general in defense contracting, which many generals did at the time, to Charlotte Motor Speedway and an office oh, made of my, of my buddy, Willie? <laughs> that's, that's, that's a great question because it kind of evolved. The first thing I did was as, as a senior and former, you know, running Joint Rentist Training Center, I was pretty good at training. And so my first job was a senior mentor. And I did that for a couple of years, preparing brigade combat teams from the National Guard and reserves to go to Iraq or to go to Afghanistan, which was something that I really took seriously. And I thought I was contributing to doing. Yeah. But then, but then somebody goofed that up because they want to ask for all my investments. So I don't, uh, so, you know, they're not paying me too much or whatever and something like that. And so I decided to go away from that, but I was blessed to, be hired by 1975 graduate of West Point by Ranger Aerospace, Steve Towns, to run a company. And this was a cool thing because back then our military was leaving their equipment, their vehicles at home base mm-hmm. and falling in on MRAPs, mine resistant armor protective vehicles in Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, somebody had to maintain the equipment, the vehicles left behind. And so that's what I had about 500 uh, wheeled vehicle mechanics as veterans working for me in a $50 million company that was maintaining this equipment and refurbishing actually Marine equipment at Barstow, California. I was going to ask you if it was Barstow and Albany, you know, yep. that's, that's what those two logistics. We didn't have Albany. We had Barstow. Uh, and then I also had, uh, some stuff at Fort Hood, Texas, working at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, some of the army posts also. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then, um, after I came out of that job, we got bought out and, and I made some money doing that. I was going to say that means that it was a successful company when you get bought out. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, I met a gentleman by the name of Tom Sadler. He was an Air Force retired major general, United States Air Force. He, during World War II, was a B-17 gunner. Uh, oh, wow. During, yeah, on the Air Force. He got out, went to school, got his commission, came back in and fought in uh, Korea and in Vietnam and he retired about 1975 and hooked up with uh, Bruton Smith, who was running Speedway Motorsports. Wow. And uh, General Sadler started what was called Speedway Children's Charities. And he took it from a fledging, fledgling nonprofit to a, about $3.5 million a year in grants to kids programs around the eight, eight speedways, that the communities around the eight speedways the Smith Speedway Motorsports owns. And I met him and he said, Hey, stick around. I'll probably get you involved in this. Well, I had known NASCAR, believe it or not. I was a grand marshal of the Coca-Cola 600 in 2004, just after I'd come back with the 82nd airborne division from Iraq. I can only imagine what, so, that, what that Coke 600 was like. The opening oh, it was, packed. it was like 120,000 people. Coca-Cola gave me the words to say, he said, on behalf of uh, the most important uh, four words in motorsports history. I'll pass it to Baghdad and the big screen TV at Charlotte Motor Speedway panned over to Baghdad and the first cavalry division over in Baghdad said, 
drivers, start your engines. Oh, it was remarkably good. I bet. So anyway, I bet, I, I bet the goosebumps were just, oh. What I learned there is NASCAR is really a patriotic sport, believe it or not. You got all the flags there. You got the invocation. You got the uh, fly over the aviation. And then you've got uh, the adrenaline rush that you and I all feel in the military. Every one of us feels at some point in time in the military, the adrenaline rush, like yeah. they do when the drivers start. I, I stood with an Army Ranger with seven deployments on his belt down at the Atlanta Motor Speedway a year ago, and he got goosebumps on his arms from just watching the green flag go down and understanding the adrenaline rush. And the third thing is we've got common rivalry like Army-Navy football, Army Air Force football, Bravo Company, Alpha Company football. Well, you got, you know, the Chase Elliott, uh, Kevin Harvick rivalry right now. So it's, I learned that. And then I just got one last, one last segment to tell you. Yes, sir. Is that in 2019, um, Marcus Smith, Bruton's uh, son, who runs Speedway Motorsports now, came to me and said, Chuck, there's too many veterans out there committing suicide. There's too high a divorce rate and there's too much homelessness. I want you to put together a program to try to turn those statistics around. And we generated what's called welcome home Patriots where basically I get defense companies to sponsor our armed forces, family members to a VIP to VIP credentials at NASCAR races. Oh, great. And I got one, I got one coming up uh, next weekend in Texas for the all-star race. I got a company sponsoring 50, Armed Forces family members, and then here at the Coca-Cola 600, I've got another company sponsoring 120 Armed Forces family members. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the uh, the Welcome Home Patriots because I saw that in your bio and I was wondering what that was all about. Um, but I kind of want to circle back to the, the Coke 600 because uh, I've I've seen it a couple of times. I've been there, you know, working for NASCAR. For those that have never been to Charlotte Motor Speedway for a Coke 600, you know, with with the name tapes on the cars. Um, the opening ceremonies, um, and it's on Memorial Day weekend. Can you describe what that event is like and how infused it is with Memorial Day? Well, it's it's all about Memorial Day, and it's yeah. all about um, honoring our fallen because we have members from all services, fallen members who gave the ultimate for our country are on the windshields of the cars. The Goodyear comes up with support to troops in blazing tires. Normally, the paint schemes are some kind of camouflage or military tone. And just to kind of tell you, the atmosphere is during the pre-race activities, Lee Greenwood's going to come down with a wireless mic down through the crowd singing God Bless the USA. And it's just, uh, it's over the top. Matter of fact, um, a lot of people don't know that there's three entities that the Department of Defense supports sports entities. One's the one of the World Series games. One's the Super Bowl, and the third is the Coca Cola Six Hundred. I did not. Know so that we'll have either. we'll have sixty to eighty members from each one of the services here. We'll have a four star flag officer that speaks and tells the uh, this basically the state of readiness of our military and talks about our military. Each service talks about their military, and it's just uh, over the top. Um, yeah, but I'll tell yeah. you when, when, uh, Lee Greenwood sings, God bless the USA. And we, we start honoring our fallen with taps and a 21 gun salute. I'll tell you, tears come to my eyes every year. So yeah. it's that, yeah. that emotional for all of us. I, I used to take Marines down to the, the track, um, kind of my own little program, you know, combat camera Marines to show them different careers that they can have when they get out you know, how you can transition these skills into, into video producers or, or other video jobs, uh, on the track. And, uh, <clears throat> one of the things I always like going with is taking those Marines through the, the, you know, through all the, the shops there where there are all the cars are out there and all this, all the paint schemes, because, you know, they have the name of a fallen service member on the cars. You know, uh, they have the, their main one that they're running for. You know, they replace their name with the fallen service member's name. But a lot of them just get so many submissions. They just put signature. They just put the names of every service member they pretty much get requested for on the cars. And um, seeing some of those Marines react to some of the names that they knew, 
you know, it's, 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 it was for me a very emotional time to be there at the track. Yeah. I'll tell you just one quick vignette. Uh, I was down in the garage during practice, I think 2018 Coca-Cola 600, 2019, I think it was 2018 and number 42 car driven back then by Carl Larson came around the corner going out to practice. And I looked on the windshield and it had captain Hampton on the windshield. And so they finished the, the pre the practice session. I went back there and talked to the, the chief of, uh, the crew chief of that car. That was Captain Kimberly Hampton, who died January 2nd, 2004. First female in the 82nd Airborne Division to die in combat during the Iraqi war, and actually the first female to die. And, uh, and so, you know, those, those memories, some of those names come back and uh, really bring back uh, the memory. Well, that's what we're doing. We're memorializing all of those, and it's right for us to do that because do that, they, they sacrificed for our freedom that we enjoy and i just hope we're living a life worthy for their sacrifice yes sir That's all yes, we sir. can do yes sir when you when you saw that name was it when you see names that you do recognize i mean you get to go there every year you see it every year you see names that you recognize sometimes is it cathartic for you to say to see that they're still being remembered in that way yes yes very it's it's uplifting that we're still remembering i mean that's what we have to do we have to honor them every every year and that's what Memorial Day is all about. Yes, sir. Um, now, one last thing I saw in your bio, sir, is that you're the president of the Patriot Military Foundation in Mooresville, North Carolina. And, and, if, and if everybody's been in Mooresville, it's, it's kind of like NASCAR Central, a lot of race teams right. and everything like right. that. Uh, what's the purpose of the, the Patriot Military Foundation? Patriot Military Family Foundation is basically uh, there to enable uh, members of our military family who need help and try to give them the quality of life that, you know, most Americans enjoy every day. And people have hardships. We were started with a, a former a Delta operator, this, uh, this foundation focused mostly at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the paratroopers, and then the special operators in, in Delta. But we've kind of morphed it into all families, National Guard, uh, any, any service or branch, but basically how we can help them and salute them and ensure that, uh, when they have a need that we can help them, you know, with that need and, and get them. We've done a lot of dogs for, uh, service connected disabilities, uh, veterans. We do, um, helping veterans with housing along with purple art homes, which is also here in this, this state. And so we try to get at the, the nexus. I believe if we can get a veteran in their family, one in a home, in a job, their kids in school and their folks, their, their family in church, if we get those four ingredients, that, that veteran family will do well. But if we miss out on a couple of those and they start feeling sorry for themselves and get alone, we got problems. And so we have to be on the lookout for that. Gotcha, sir. It seems like your entire post-military career um, once you got involved with, 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 uh, the speedway there, it's been a, it's been a life of service. What's it mean for you during your transition to build to serve in the ways that you have? Well, just like what you're doing, I'm sure you get pumped up talking to veterans. Yes, sir. I get pumped up talking to veterans. I mean, I want to help them whenever I, I, I did a change of command ceremony. I said, if I can ever help you in any way, you reach out and touch me. And a lot of people have reached out and touched me. And so, um, I just, I just get such a joy hearing from them one and two, uh, just keeping up with them. And when I bring these, these families to a, a NASCAR race, and I get them down there pre-race activities and I give them some swag, I give them good food, put them in the suite. Just to see the joy they're having is is just enough to make make pump me up, get my adrenaline rushing and making me feel good. And so I, I need those kind of doses too, like I'm sure you do. Absolutely, sir. Absolutely, sir. Um, sir, what's one thing that you learned during your time in the military that you apply to what you do today? I, I think um, is what I, I talked about earlier, Tanner. Um, I probably didn't listen good enough when I was in uniform 
And what I tried to take away from that is uh, in the military, you know, you got sergeants major that will help you understand what's going on. And you've got, you know, privates that you talk to when you're out there visiting them and what they're doing will will tell you what's going on. Um, And I used to do that, but, you know, when I became a civilian, I didn't have any of those other networks. And so I think I found a way to really pay attention to what people are saying more so and try to fill in that void, find out where they are and what they're doing and how their life is going and, and how I can pump them up or help them. So that's, that's probably one thing I've taken away. I wasn't a good listener in the uniform. I did get feedback from my, my sergeants and folks, uh, but I need to apply that now in my civilian role to be, you know, I got to pick up on what's going on with people around me. I love it, sir. I love that you're, 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 uh, you're very reflective and you're, you're always, always looking to improve. Um, sir, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything that I may have missed or haven't asked? And think about the audience that's listening to this, um, that you'd like to, you know, is there a parting shot maybe that, that you'd like to share? Well, I, I think, um, I'm going to speak uh, after the Coca-Cola 600 the next day in Kannapolis and give a Memorial Day speech. Mm. And as as I think what's coming up for all of us, um, we really have to focus on those folks that gave their lives for us and talk about them. I'm going to talk about three. I told you about Captain Hampton. I'm going to talk about Sergeant Baddock. Uh, who was killed in action around Abu Ghraib prison in the canal, mm-hmm. trying to help turn to recover some people, a national guardsmen that had fallen in the water. And third, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mark Taylor, who was our division surgeon who died in, uh, in Fallujah in inside the Fallujah base camp when a rocket came in. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to talk about these three and how, um, you know, they were there in responding to, a lot, but what really made them give their lives is not because of what oath they took to serve the constitution. Probably constitution was the farthest thing from their mind. What was on their mind was not letting their buddies down. That's where sacrifice really comes in the military. We start out as a self, but right after the first first couple of days of training, we understand self is gone. It's all about team, team, team. And so I think if we, as America, Americans going into this Memorial Day weekend, let's get back to thinking we're all on the same team. We're not divided. We're all on the same team trying to promote America. And so, you know, when somebody needs help let's let's help them but come on let's live a life worthy of the sacrifice of those who gave their lives for our freedoms that's that's what i'm all about sir i couldn't have ended this any better myself well thank you so much sir um appreciate your time and we are out thank you sir i was a gunner's mate tonkin golf logistics Ramstein. Medic. Kandahar. As a veteran, it doesn't matter when or where you served. Infantry. Camp Pendleton. Or what you did. The VA has benefits that may be useful to you right now. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. I want to thank the good general for coming on for more information on chuck swanick tell you what put his name in the google machine and there are plenty of articles about what he's been up to within the past eight years with speedway motorsports being that today is memorial day this week's born the battle of veteran of the week is every single veteran that gave their lives in service to this country may they all rest in peace and may all of their families find peace especially as we're all with them today. We honor their service. Ready, aim, fire.
That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a future Born the Battle Veteran of the Week so we can all learn their story, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. If you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcasting app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song and was written by Marine veteran Mark McKilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun. Firefight bullets fly day and night brain. Simplify till we're another campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Point, click, pull the trigger to the tune of falling brass. Russian-made bullet in my back Raining down lead Punching that clock Get them boys, I'm laying down Cover machine gunner bullets fly day and night Brain, simplify Do or die, another campaign Here we go, lock and load Oh, 331, lug a thousand rounds And I ain't bringing back one I was on uh, the stage with uh, Bob Hope and Glory Loring when I was at West Point. Really? Before Bob, before Bob Hope went over to uh, Vietnam with uh, Glory Loring and the Gold Diggers, he stopped by West Point. This is 1970, and I was captain of the West Point golf team. Bob Hope's a big golfer. Yeah. So he, he had me up on stage. And the reason that I was used on stage, not so much for my golf, was because I'm tall, I'm blonde, and I blush easy. And so you know what you know what you know what my my only word I needed to say was what's that sir? Gloria Loring came up and put a put her arms around me, and gave me a kiss, and Bob Hope asked me, "Well, how'd you like that?" And my response was, "It's just like having one potato chip." You remember the old commercial Lay's? <laughs> That's right. Just can't have one. Yeah. So anyway, that was that Smooth. was my debut, debut on the stage.